You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Neil J. Stone, the Bono Professor of Medicine and Preventative Cardiology at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago. He has a practice in cardiovascular diseases and a special clinic for the diagnosis and management of lipid-related disorders at the Northwestern Medical Faculty Foundation. Today we're going to be discussing non-pharmacological approaches to the metabolic syndrome and diabetes. And for our audience, we are broadcasting live from the New Orleans uh, National Lipid Association meeting entitled Lipids Throughout the Lifetime. So Neil, thank you very much for taking time to do this interview. Thanks, Alan. Great to be here. So I know you're going to talk to us about metabolic syndrome, and I think this is a source of great confusion among our docs. Many of them uh, know how to calculate it. They, they know what the criteria are to make the diagnosis of metabolic syndrome. But when I ask them, now what do you do? What does that mean to you? Is it a CHD risk equivalent or isn't it? Um, what are the implications for treatment? Sometimes their eyes glaze over, and, and this is something which I know you feel very strongly about. So tell us a little bit about why it's so critical to identify these patients, uh, and then once you identify them, what are the implications for the docs? Great, Alan. Well, first of all, it's not a disease. It's simply a syndrome. There's a big difference. Number two, it's a very useful clinical construct for identifying those people who benefit greatly from non-pharmacologic therapy. What do I mean? In a simple sentence, it would be eat less, eat smart, move more daily. Many of my patients remember it. In fact, one patient came back, had a great year, and he said, you know, I still keep thinking of that line. I said, well, it was easy to do because why did I say it? He says, yeah, you told me I had the lipids that were abnormal and the blood sugar and the blood pressure and all these would get better and he lost about 5% of his weight, and his triglycerides improved, his HDL improved, his blood pressure's a little lower, uh, his blood sugar's a little better, and in that sense, it's very powerful. But it's not a, a Framingham risk score. You're better off with a global CVD uh, risk equation. It's not uh, a marker that uh, proves he'll be diabetic. You know, looking at his A1C and blood sugar and his, his body weight can help you there as well. But it certainly gives you an idea of two prognostic uh, factors. They're more likely to have developed diabetes, more likely to get coronary artery disease. But most important, they're going to get incredible benefit from non-pharmacologic therapy. So that's a very important take-home point, that you, you see a patient whose abdomen enters the room before they do, and, and then you know that here's someone, unlike a thinner patient who might have hypertension or a thinner patient who might have impaired fasting glucose, or a thinner patient with high triglycerides, where the effects of weight loss, for example, might not be so strong. This is a patient where you really could say lifestyle is going to make a difference on all three factors. Although I want to point out, as was noted in the ATP3 original uh, paper, in uh, now it's been in 12 years ago, in 2001, uh, certain groups, for example, those from South Asia, are, don't, are not that large around the waist, and we actually are a little more liberal with our criteria. We think an expanded waist is 10% less of the waist size, for example, that we would use for a basically European-derived uh, population. So you can't always tell exactly by looking. You sort of have to measure. But most importantly, you've got to ask, is this person from an ethnic subgroup where metabolic syndrome is running rampant? That's very interesting. So we need to really correct our parameters based on the patient's ethnic background, something that I think uh, our average physicians aren't thinking about so much. Right. 
So what have we learned from the clinical trials about treating metabolic syndrome with the lifestyle versus drugs? And, you know, how do you prioritize what you're going to do in terms of medical therapy versus lifestyle? And then uh, the old saying that willpower has a half-life of two weeks and is soluble in alcohol. Give us a few pearls on how you approach these patients initially to try and get them motivated for the lifestyle change. Well, there's no question that I tell people the second hardest thing to do in life is to change your behavior, but the hardest thing is to make those behavior changes stick. That's actually the hardest. But we have some insights from clinical trials. We have the uh, Finnish diabetes study where they uh, looked at a group of uh, patients with impaired glucose tolerance in Finland, middle-aged adults, and they were able to show that a a better diet, regular exercise, a modest amount of weight loss, not only reduced the likelihood of diabetes by almost 60%, but in a follow-up study where they hadn't paid attention to these people for a number of years, the intervention group was still doing better than the control group. And then the big diabetes prevention study. Now here's a large study, thousands of people, and now you've got again impaired glucose tolerance. You have middle-aged American adults, and they were able to show that lifestyle was the superior intervention. It actually did better than metformin, which surprised a lot of people. And so that uh, again, they lost a, a, a small amount of weight, they exercised regularly, and they stuck with a therapeutic diet, high in, in dietary fiber, low in saturated fat, and I'm sure restricted in carbs because otherwise they couldn't have lost the weight. The point is that they needed counseling in order to make that happen. And one of the take-home messages, I think, is that a lot of people just can't do this on their own. They may need a little bit of help, and how they get the help may, may be how we individualize or personalize our advice to patients. Okay, I'm going to push you a little bit on that because I think, you know, the average physician probably listening uh, thinks it's all well and good that if people could lose 7% of their weight like they did in the DPP, they got a 56% reduction in risk of diabetes. All sounds great, but a lot of doctors are, have become kind of discouraged and they feel like uh, they they can't seem to get people to lose weight, that, that uh, weight loss doesn't persist. And maybe that's partially because they haven't had good wisdom on where to start and what to tell their patients. Well, so what would you recommend well, for the average physician? Should he be referring people to a program? Or what, are the, what, what do you say to a patient when you first have to embark on weight well, loss? Well, I use the, a, the ABC approach. Everybody wants to adopt an ABC's pattern. It's been used successfully in cardiology in different ways. But I've been doing this a long time, and and what I like to do is, A, attitude. I tell people, if this really isn't important to you, probably it's not going to happen. But you've got to think about how important is it that you do these things to improve your, your health. B, buy a scale. You'd be surprised how many people don't have one at home. And weigh yourself regularly and don't gain weight. I didn't say lose weight right away. I said, just don't gain weight. Try to learn what it takes to keep your weight stable. The patients of mine who for years have maintained a healthy weight, they know that they've got to do a little better the week before or the week after they're going to go off the diet. C, choose to move as much as you can. You don't necessarily have to join a gym and work out with all those hard bodies that scare the heck out of most people as they get older. 
The point is you've got to figure out how to incorporate more activity into your day and talk to your doctor if there's any concerns about it. But the point is that people can do a much better job of building exercise and physical activity into their day. D, dietary choices are very important. Um, do you need initially to be on a substitute meal plan where somebody chooses the meals for you? Do you need to work with groups like Weight Watchers that work with, with a, a, a well-described way of getting people to think about calories and think about uh, behavior and think about motivation? Do you need to see a dietitian, a registered dietitian who can help you uh, decide uh, how to substitute into your diet? These are all possible options that people should use, and there are advantages and disadvantages for each of them. Uh, and then uh, E, evaluate the barriers. Is your biggest barrier that everybody else in the family likes to eat junk food and you're the only one who doesn't? You may have to sit down and talk to everybody. Is it because you have to eat out a lot for business? It turns out there are strategies to do that, and that's where, for example, a dietitian who can personalize that time with you can make a huge difference. So evaluate the barriers, and then F, frequent follow-up. You're going to need to figure out who you follow up with, whether it be a group or a uh, person or even your or physician's office. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and joining me is Dr. Neil Stone. Once again, Neil, thanks for coming. As you talked about the barriers, it reminded me of a story that our old friend, John Ferret from Baylor, used to tell where uh, uh, one of his female patients had lost a tremendous amount of weight. The husband was very jealous and actually thought that she might leave him, so she, he kept putting food in front of her and trying to keep her from losing weight. So My point is, though, that the focus isn't on weight loss. The focus for metabolic syndrome is improving metabolic risk factors. And so this isn't a program about the biggest loser. I think the doctor needs to encourage people to develop those behaviors. It's the attitude, it's the moving more daily, it's the eating wisely, it's the learning how to eat a little less, watch your portion sizes, and, uh, and also to be able to individualize it because we have the pounds loss study that showed that if you looked at a low carb diet, if you looked at a, uh, a low-fat diet, if you looked at uh, a diet lower in protein or higher in protein, all of these diets were uh, essentially the same in terms of weight loss at the end of two years. And yet individual patients will tell you there's some diet that works for them. Again, I think the focus of the doctor shouldn't be on you're going to lose a gazillion pounds because that's highly unlikely they're going to take off 150 pounds and keep it off. But if they can have some goals that they can achieve and improve their, their, their metabolic factors, I think that's what we've seen in these, in these randomized trials that can make a difference. Yeah, it's interesting that a 7 to 10 percent weight loss, usually the patients feel dramatically better, even if they're still quite obese. Uh, when they lose 20 pounds and they weigh 250, or they, just they don't, feel or, better. Their arthritis feels better and their numbers look better. Or just don't gain weight. If I could do one thing over in my clinical practice, I would have asked each patient starting in 1975, while you're with me, let's not gain weight. Because many doctors will tell you under their skill for tutelage, their patients got heavier and heavier. And we, we, didn't, we didn't do step one. Just figure out a way how to control where you are. And, and, uh, and, and then once you work on the behaviors, there's a great study, uh, the Cardia study looked at adults 18 to 30, 
even though some were overweight or in the obese range, if they didn't gain weight, they were less likely to develop metabolic syndrome characteristics than those who did gain weight. So I think step one is don't gain weight. First things first. So let me ask you, Neil, when you're trying to motivate patients that come in with the metabolic syndrome, what do you think drives them more to consider the behavioral change? Is it uh, the fear of diabetes or the fear of coronary disease? And, and what do you tell them in the office to try and explain to them what metabolic syndrome adds to their risk and, and why they have to deal with it? Well, we do a form of motivational interviewing where we first try to develop patient rapport. We try to, to find out what their health goals are if they frankly don't care about anything and their life is too stressed to think about doing one thing for their health, they're frankly not going to change. I think that I've been able to see that as well as read about it over the years. But for people who say, you know, I actually am concerned. I've got a bad family history and uh, I'm worried about diabetes like my uncle Maury and I'm worried about a heart attack like my dad. Then the conversation can turn to earnest. Well, what do you think you should do? And what we like to do is before they leave, we have them write down the three or four most important things that they're going to try to accomplish. And again, this is how I practice, but when patients help create their own agenda, it often works out best. I, my experience has been that patients are more nervous about diabetes than a heart attack. And uh, what I tell them, and you tell me whether this is reasonable, is you know I don't want you to spend your retirement years worrying about kidney failure, loss of limb, or uh, using insulin. And that uh, just by losing 7 to 10 percent of your body weight, we can reduce your chance of that by almost 60 percent. And I get a fairly good response from that, uh, uh, from the patients. They just seem to be, diabetes seems to be a bigger fear to them than, than uh, coronary disease. But how much does having metabolic syndrome amplify your coronary risk? And I know it's probably well, a var variable. Well, well, we published a paper a number of years ago, and we showed that for, when we analyzed the data from, Jennifer Robinson and I looked at the data from a lot of these large-scale trials, at any level of LDL, Having metabolic syndrome increased your risk of an event whether you didn't have coronary disease or whether you did. So now some people will say, well, that's just because of those risk factors. You know what I say? I say exactly right. It's not more necessarily, but the point is when you point out to people that you've clustered a number of these risk factors, all of which are important, you've got a golden opportunity to uncluster by seeing if you can lose weight. And remember, the initial Framingham data suggested that what had made a big difference for people is if they gained just five pounds or so, they were more likely to cluster risk factors uh, versus those who didn't. So trying to avoid that weight gain in middle life can be very big. And number two, trying to see if you can reverse some of, of this with healthier habits. I'm not interested in instant weight loss uh, uh, by, by some uh, pill that uh, is unproven in terms of its side effects. I'm interested in improving life habits. That's what I think the message of metabolic syndrome is based on the clinical trials. So finally, Neil, when you're targeting weight loss and the patient is motivated, what's a healthy amount of weight to lose over time? Do you think, uh, uh, is there Alan, any Alan, believe it or not, I actually don't focus on that. In uh, DPP, they lost 7% of weight was the target. I would hate to make someone who lost 6% of their weight feel like a failure. And so what I tell them is the goal isn't the amount of weight loss. The goals are, one, don't gain weight, and number two, 
let's focus on healthy and, and health-promoting behaviors. In fact, I define stress as that which interferes with health-promoting behaviors. Eating, sleeping, um, uh, exercise, um, uh, all of these things are, uh, are important. And uh, the ability for someone to see is that I'm going to develop a heart-healthy lifestyle is, is very powerful. And, and if you look at the Heart Association Simple 7, you can see how powerful a healthy lifestyle is in dealing with the Simple 7 that the American Heart Association wisely recommends. Well, thank you very much, Neil. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time. I really enjoyed your explanation of metabolic syndrome, how the practitioner should think about metabolic syndrome, and then the approach to therapy, which should focus primarily on lifestyle. Dr. Stone, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure, Alan. Thank you. And I'm Dr. Alan Brown. You've been listening to Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association on ReachMD. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com lipids, featuring podcasts of this and other series. And thank you very much for listening.